Hello and welcome all our mad warriors out there. I'm Johannes Hartmann and I'm the director of Mad Heidi. You're tuning in to Mad Talk, our new podcast where we host guests from the Mad Heidi team or other people related to genre film. I hope you can all hear me loud and clearly. Otherwise, please just drop a comment wherever you're watching. Uh, usually I would have someone here in uh, our Mad studio, but uh, today's guest will be welcomed through Skype. Uh, maybe to give you a quick background, uh, together with my uh, two co-writers, Gregory Whitmer and my longtime business partner, Sandro Klopstein. We worked hard on the Matt Heidi script over the last year. And um, some, of, some of you guys who bought the attend the script meeting bonus reward had the opportunity to uh, read the script back in March of this year. Um, and we got a ton of very valuable feedback from everybody. And um, yeah, today's guest uh, recently joined our writing team and he brought in some great fresh ideas as well as an outsider's view onto Switzerland. And yeah, he was able to fix a few of our existing problem in the script. Uh, he's a longtime writer, director, actor and producer from the United States. Um, please welcome, if everything works now, let's hope that Skype doesn't play uh, with us. So please welcome Mr. Trent Tega. Hello, man. Was ist los und wie geht's alles? Yeah, alles super hier. And with you? Uh, very good, very good. It's uh, morning here in Los Angeles. It's Europe, so... Yeah. I'm <laughs> Great to have you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Um, yeah, be before we talk about Mad Heidi, let's um, talk about your background for a little while. Um, was it uh, always clear to you that you want to make movies or, or how, how do you end, did you end up in the film industry? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, I was born in the early 1970s, so I'm sort of a Gen X and I'm from the last generation of people that were born before there were VHS. Uh, I remember very clearly growing up in a small town where the closest cinema was almost an hour away. And so every time I got to go to the cinema, it was a magical experience and um uh you know and, and when the wizard of oz came on television once a year i had to make sure that i got to see it because that would be the only time i got to see it and so i think the scarcity of movies when i was young really made them really really special and they were special occasions and they were magical you know uh, the magic of movies caught me at a very very young age um and by the time i was getting out of high school and thought that maybe I wanted to to work in films. You're from Indiana. Now, you know, though if your uncle doesn't work for Paramount Pictures and if you weren't raised in Los Angeles, you'll never get to make movies and 
that's kind of what I, I believed that for a long time. And then uh, I started to really get into underground cinema, uh, uh, low budget cinema. And I started to see that you can indeed, you don't need to have a hundred million dollars to be able to make a movie. And when I determined that, then I just did everything I could to try to get into films, you know, and started at the bottom with the low, like people like Troma, the only ones that'll give a kid from Indiana a chance, you know? Yeah, for those listening who don't know Trauma, uh, Trauma Films is an independent production and distribution company uh, founded by Lloyd Kaufman in the 1974 or something, I guess. Uh, I guess their most famous um, piece is The Toxic Avenger. Uh, how, how was it for you to work for Trauma? I guess uh, the budgets are crazy low. Is it something you just do for fun or is it working under extreme pressure with these... Uh, small budgets yes yes and yes you know what I mean? you're certainly not getting paid a lot of money uh you're doing it purely for the love and although you don't have the resources and the manpower and the money and the ability to do everything to the fullest capacity there's something about the idea of you're doing it for the right reasons you're doing it for pure reasons you're doing it purely out of love or you're doing it despite the fact that people almost don't want you to that uh really makes the working on those movies magical but they are extremely horrendous working conditions um it's not easy uh luckily i i grew up in small places my father is a coal miner a farmer had grown up as a child doing things like throwing hay bales in the summer all summer long so to me the idea of work and labor is really about like you have to sweat if you're not dirty at the end of the day if you haven't broken your back at the end of the day then you're not really actually doing work and so uh you know uh, luckily my first experience is making trauma movies i was like oh i know what this is this is work I think that a lot of people on bigger budgets, you know, directors, producers, whatever, it's not that they don't do work, but it's very comfortable for them. You can sit in a chair with a, with a tent over you so your head doesn't get sunburned and things to drink there. You know, there's a level of comfort that uh, you don't get that I didn't get when I was first starting out. But, uh, you know, the, the movies were incredibly fun to make, but they were primitive conditions. I guess one of your first uh, credits, writing credits, was uh, Citizen Toxie, right, from Troma. Um, but that you co-wrote, and then the first one you wrote by yourself was Hell Asylum, if I'm correct. Uh, but this wasn't Troma, right? Mm -hmm. This was Full Moon. Uh, yes, exactly. exactly. Uh, more of the same. You know, what the, the difference would be that Troma, uh, Lloyd would come up with ideas every day. Lloyd would uh, read a newspaper story about something and be like, we have to put this in the movie, and we would already be well into pre-production. And I'd be like, well, where are we going to get this or that? I don't know, but you need to get it. So you're co-writing with Lloyd. You're co-writing with people that are throwing ideas out, really. You know? So my job was just to constantly update as I was producing and assistant directing and making sure that if Lloyd changed his mind or wanted to change a scene or wanted to throw a new scene, that it made sense uh, by the time I got to Full Moon, you know, Charles Band, the owner of Full Moon, has made uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies. It's more of a, a machine whose job it is to get a movie done and turned into blockbuster on time. 
So Hell Asylum, there was no collaboration because there was no time. They literally asked me about 12 days before we went into pre-production if I could write them a script. So I sat down and wrote Hell Asylum in about six days and then took it to the office and printed up a bunch of copies and handed them out. And uh, within two weeks, we were shooting that movie. So uh, there was no time to collaborate. There was no time to share ideas or to whatever, because basically what I wrote got printed up and we shot it. And then we moved on and did another movie the next month. So um, uh, uh, so I got my solo writing credit on Hell Asylum because uh, I was the only person crazy enough to think that they could write an entire movie in six days and get it done. <laughs> uh, how would you compare, for example, Trauma or Full Moon to um, the exploitation films of Roger Corman? Is it like uh, an 80s version of Roger Corman or is it, uh, is it uh, more rebellious? Yeah. Is it the punk rock version of Roger Corman or... <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because what I would say is Roger Corman to me was the one who really got it right. He understood that his movies were product, but he also understood that his movies were art and he was really good at picking the right artists to work with, even though they were under pressure. Uh, so I feel that Lloyd Kaufman embodied the punk rock spirit of making movies. He embodied the truly independent creative spirit. He uh, didn't really care what the trends were or anything like that and he made these movies whereas like Charles Band was definitely more of the Corman school where it's like you have uh, eight days to write this 12 days to prep it eight days to shoot it, and three weeks to post because we've already sold it and it needs to be in stores by this time so I always wanted to work for Corman but I never got a chance to because to me he embodied the best of both like uh, Troma didn't really care about sales or how well their movies got out and Full Moon cared a lot less about the quality of their 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 content and so I learned how to do the Corman trick by working for two other people who only did half of Corman does that yeah, make sense definitely yeah <laughs> uh, yeah let's hope it happens as long as he's still alive Mr. Corman <laughs> yes indeed. Um, but I think even before you have the first writing credits, you had your first acting credits, right? Um, Terror Firmer by Troma was one of your first, first roles where uh, Lloyd played the blind <laughs> director and um, you were one of his crew members, right? Um, yeah. Then uh, also these Killjoy movies where you became like the, the bad guy, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's weird. I was actually, uh, I went to film school, but I never thought that I would actually be making films. I just did it to be defiant and to learn something that I wanted to do. And uh, I ended up working, because of my film knowledge, I ended up being an editor for an entertainment website uh, way in the early days of the internet. Like when back in the day, you had two things in the States. You had AOL, America Online, and then you had CompuServe, and you had to pay these people to access the internet, right? So I did all the co entertainment content for CompuServe and was a writer doing journalism. And I uh, saw that Troma was looking for extras for their movie, and I never acted in a movie or anything, but I acted in movies. And I know these guys, so I went to my boss and I pitched a story idea where I would go and be an extra for a day. And I would take exclusive photos and I would write a web story. And they were like, sure, 
we'll give you if you can get a role as an extra in Terra Firma, we'll give you a day off and you can go do that for a story. And so I went with I no headshot, no experience, no resume, never having worked on an actual movie. And I just I didn't have a monologue. I didn't have anything. I just went and was like, look, if you put me as an extra in your movie, I will put a story on the Internet about it. And if you kill me in the movie, that would be my greatest dream to come true, to be killed in a trauma movie. And I don't know what happened, but I just, they, they liked me. And they kept calling me back and calling me back and leading me with different characters, different people. And eventually, I got this major role in this movie. And I did it and it was amazing. And while I was there, I ended up befriending all the crew. And really I was the actor that would hang around and clean up, clean up afterwards and help them out and help them break down equipment because I had gone to film school. And a couple of screenplays that I had written. And after Terra Firmer was done, he only knew me as an actor, but he had read the scripts. And then he called me into his office one day and I left my computer job and I went to go see him. And he's like, hey, listen, I need somebody to write the new Toxic Avenger movie. Would you like to do it? And I, of course, you know. Uh, so I, I found my way in front of the camera and then worked my way behind the camera. Whereas uh, with uh, Killjoy, I honestly, I got hired to be the producer on Killjoy 2. And we had about less than two weeks of preparation. We had to cast these movies, find all the locations, get all the props. We had to do everything in about 13 days. And uh, the producer director of the movie was like, we've got to find somebody to play Killjoy. And she was like, you were in a couple movies and I know you're going to be there every day anyway. And I don't have to pay you anything extra. So why don't you play the clown? And because I was the producer, I said, Fine, I'll do it. And I did it. And then they ended up making like several sequels and brought me back. So they're both like weird, weird accidents where I just happen to be at the right place at the right time. So is it is it something that now, I mean, you have over 60 acting credits, I think, on IMDb. Did it become like a side income for you or, or is it just something you do for fun if a friend has a cool project? It, it, it's more along those lines. I mean, I've never made any money. Look, the Killjoy movies, we will shoot those in about eight days. I have to go put on that makeup, which takes hours and hours and hours, you know, and then we shoot for 14, 16 hours because we're shooting a whole feature in such a short amount of time. And I, you know, honestly, I think I got, I, wor I finally worked my way after doing four of those movies. I think I got paid like $1,500 to do the entire movie. So, I can't say I do it for the income. I mean, certainly $1,500 is great, but it's still a week's worth of hard labor, you know? And uh, uh, so I just do it because friends ask me to, and I get to be on a set. And honestly, I feel like as a filmmaker, I learned a lot by being an actor, by watching how other directors deal with issues, by watching how they creatively fix problems, by watching how they did. That's primarily why I accept a lot of acting jobs is not because I think I'm good at it, but because A, someone has asked me, and B, it's an opportunity for me to watch another artist at work where it's not my responsibility to, you know what I mean? It's, it's like really one of the best jobs on set if you want to learn how to be a filmmaker, because your work is a very small amount of the day, and the rest of the day you can watch 
everyone else do their jobs and learn how they do it yeah i can imagine that i mean it's probably the only job where you can watch the director uh, that closely and uh, yeah watch different directors exactly. how they do it yeah when i'm a production assistant they've got me running off going to get coffee i'm not on set or you know you're standing with the walkie-talkie locking down a block or whatever like uh, but as an actor you're really like right there you see how they do the camera you see everything so it was great like uh, yeah, I've learned so much about filmmaking by being actors, uh, an actor in other people's movies. Because I also won't go back to the trailer or whatever. I mean, I like to be right there. And even when I'm not in a scene, I like to kind of hang around and just learn and watch how they do it. I, I've, I think I've only directed two movies, but I feel like I was able to avoid a lot of uh, the mistakes that a first-time filmmaker makes because I had so much experience on set. Uh, yeah, then I think at some point around 2010-2011 you directed your first film, Chop. Uh, was it always clear or your goal that you want to eventually become a director and the writing was just the way to get there? Or did you have a script and nobody wanted to buy it so you made it yourself? Uh, how did it happen? Uh, yeah, well interestingly enough I kept writing screenplays that I wanted to direct. That's where Cheap Thrills came from. That's where Dead Girl came from. That's where a lot of my bigger movies that have been made were me writing things for me to direct. And I kept taking scripts to people and they would be like, we read this script and we really like it. And we think that it's great. Uh, and we understand that you want to direct it, but we don't know anything about you as a director. When you write something, you know, you get to make it and there it is. It's a it's a it's an example of your work and people can read it and they and so they would keep offering to buy the scripts but they wouldn't hire me as a director because they didn't know me and I didn't have enough uh, work under my belt or whatever and of course uh, you know I have a family and whatever so and I keep going well this brain in my head it'll come up with another idea and if I can take money now so I kept selling scripts that were very close to me and I kept seeing them do really well for the directors <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and I was like, no, I want to do it myself. So another kind of long story, but I ended up getting, they called me up to do Killjoy Part 3. And uh, they said, look, we need you to come back and play the clown. And I was like, look, I've only played the clown because I produced the last movie. I'm not really, I don't want to play the clown. And they were like, yeah, well, we're shooting it in China. So... I was like, all right, I'll do it. I'll do it. So <laughs> I, I flew to China and I worked on Killjoy 3 and I played Killjoy 3 and we shot it. And while I was there, I met this Chinese who was interested in the fact that we were making a movie in China. And he happened to, we were at dinner and he was like, well, what, what does it take to make a movie? And I was like, you know what, if you give me... And I was like, I don't know how rich this guy is. I don't know anything. I was like, I was like, if you give me $60,000, I will make you a feature film. <laughs> and he was like, really? That's it? Okay. Go home next week and start a bank account, and I'll wire you the money. And he was like, do you have an idea? And I had, I had read this script that a friend of mine had written that I really liked, and I thought it was up my alley. And I was like, yeah, I've got a script. <laughs> <laughs> like two months later, I was we were shooting that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so you made the entire movie with 60k. Oh yeah, and that was like not just like I think I shot it for about 20 to 25, and then all the rest of it was like uh, not just post, but like 
I replicated DVDs to send to festivals, festival screening fee, entry fees. Like, you know, $60,000 was like everything, the whole thing. It wasn't just shooting it. It was promoting it. It was submitting it to film festivals. It was everything. Mm. But I guess that's also like uh, an average trauma budget or... <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, trauma shoots on 35 millimeters. So they spend and they shoot for like 30 days because they're kind of making it up as they go along. So trauma movies are more like a quarter of a million to half a million okay. dollars by the time it's all said and done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But the full moon movies that I had done, many, many of are a lot more like $33,000 movies or $35,000 movies. So uh, my work with full moon was what made me, I was able to shoot my first film for about $25,000 on a 10-day shoot. Yeah. You know? <laughs> crazy uh i guess in europe some of your uh, maybe better known titles could be dead girl and cheap thrills uh, i think cheap thrills was even released on blu-ray in the uk and in germany uh you were a co-writer on these uh, how did this happen and um i guess these were quite big projects compared to uh, yeah. what you have done before Well, I mean, those are two that I'm particularly proud of because a lot of times, you know, uh, a filmmaker or a producer or someone will come to you with a, with an idea, with a title, with a treatment, sometimes with a script that they want you to do a rewrite on or whatever. But Cheap Thrills and Dead Girl are two specs, meaning I sat down, I made them up, I wrote them, you know. I think I'm a co-writer on Cheap Thrills because they wanted some rewrites and I just did not. I was doing a movie for a TV network here and they paid me like a couple hundred dollars for Cheap Thrills. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I can't do rewrites from you for you for free and I've got a paid job. And so I, I recommended a friend of mine, David Churcherillo, who did a great job with it. Uh, Dead Girl, actually, you know, I'm the sole credited writer on that. I wrote that one also just by myself. And then I took it around and people were like what is wrong with you trent no one is ever going to make this movie this is fucking disturbing uh no and it sat around for a long time and then i gave it to some directors as a writing sample because they were looking for a writer and they ended up going we would like to make this movie and i was like no 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 everybody told me that that movie will never get made so that's the beautiful thing is that like A, Europe obviously has the best taste because my biggest movies are my best movies over there. And B, those are two movies that are completely original ideas that were my scripts, that were my ideas. They weren't like someone else telling me the type of movie they wanted. They weren't giving me anything. So, uh, And so part of me is like, very, I get very excited because I'm like, my movies, the ones that come from me are obviously the best movies that... I have, and yet people still don't want my original idea. <laughs> <laughs> Because they're all, honestly, they're all a little bit dangerous. You know what I mean? They're a little bit like things that people get a little scared by, you know? Uh, uh, it's, it's weird, it's weird, <laughs> but... Uh, and, and, but how is it for you, as a, if you're a writer and then you give your script to a director i guess this can go both ways i guess sometimes you're <laughs> you can be very happy with the results but uh, sometimes the director can probably totally fuck up your uh, script into something completely different from what you hoped for uh yeah no this has happened to me many times 
Uh, it's hap that's happened to me more than you know directors surprising me by making something that uh, that that was surpassed what I had in my mind or whatever. But I think that's it's tricky when you're a writer. You already have seen it. You've made the movie in your mind, so it's very difficult to also then see it. It's to you have to have a special relationship with the director. I think to to give them the movie and then have it turn out the way you envision it because you're two different artists, two different people sort of uh, uh, building on the, on the, on the same thing. Uh, but I do believe that, you know, fundamentally, look, I love cheap thrills and I love uh, dead girl. I think they're both great movies, but fundamentally neither movie is like, uh, they're both extremely low budget and neither of them is what I would consider to be like, have massive visual style. You know what I mean? Or anything like that. They're very like handheld, low budget, people in a room talking, you know, so not to whatever. But my movies that seem more like stage plays are the ones that end up the closest to how I envisioned because uh, they were devised to be made for very low budget and to affect you in a way that you don't need steady cams or explosions or anything like that. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, so, uh yeah, yeah. So uh, in many ways, those movies were always meant to be, even in 68 Kill to an extent, they're all meant to be, they were all devised to be done for a low budget. They were all devised to look a little gritty and to not be all about visual pop. These aren't superhero movies, you know what I mean? They were small, gritty movies. And so when you write them specifically for that, then it's easier for a director, I think, to translate that sort of work than when you write an action sequence. You know what I mean? That is all about the director. And that's all about how the director portrays it and his, his or her uh, choice of camera angles and editing and pacing and music. Whereas, like, you know, a really a scene with two people talking about how they're going to molest a zombie. You know what I mean? You can, you can have a, a spinning camera. You can have all that stuff. But the impact comes from the thought of what's going on here. So I think... Why those movies worked out that way, you know? Uh, do you do you enjoy doing these low budget films? Is it what you want to do, or because maybe you have more freedom than with bigger budgets, or is it your ultimate goal to at some point uh, do a big studio movie or write on a big studio movie? Yeah, I think I always knew that I wasn't destined for that. I was not a kid who really liked Star Wars or E.T. when I was a kid. I wanted to make Escape from New York, you know, when I was a kid or The Road Warrior. These are the movies that like blew me away when I was 10 years old, not not Star Wars. But um, I like my art to be a little bit dangerous. I like my art to have a little bit and, and, and a little be a little weird, be maybe confrontational. My ultimate goal one day would be to be a Gaspar Noe or somebody that like at least has access to some time and a little bit of money but still gets to make something that is professional and slick but also individual, you know, and, and is like art. Uh, uh, but, I mean, that's not to say, look, if somebody said, I need you to write a stupid Marvel movie, here's a check for like a gajillion dollars, I would do it in a second. But that's not how I ever envisioned my future. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to talk about this, but I think I heard a story uh, that at some point you even had to learn the hard way what can go wrong if too much money and too many uh, big stars are involved, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Uh, oh yeah, no, and that was a that was a brutal that was a brutal Hollywood experience. That uh, I'm sorry, I've got to plug my phone in. We're there. We go. Yep. Can you hear me? All good. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I wrote once again. It was another move. Uh, what they call a spec script, right? It was just a script that was like uh, based on a newspaper headline that I had seen, and it was uh, about these old women who had been befriending homeless people, and then getting insurance policies for them and then they would kill them and i thought oh that's a really dark story it could make for something very funny in my mind <laughs> so i wrote sort of a dark comedy about old women who uh are killing homeless people for insurance money and it ended up becoming like a huge script it went around town and a lot of really big stars got brought on and uh, it was going to be the movie that made me. I got my name in Variety on the cover. Uh, we had Shirley MacLaine, Olympia Dukakis, Giovanni Ribisi, Channing Tatum, uh, Rosario Dawson. I mean, it was like legit. But one of our actors was Lindsay Lohan. And uh, the producers, instead of going to a Weinstein company or a, uh, or a Focus feature or a uh, uh, any of these companies wanted to take the movie from them. They thought, oh, we're just going to go borrow a bunch of money, borrow $10 million and make this movie ourselves, and we're going to collect all the dough. And they could not insure Lindsay Lohan, but she was still like a big name. And uh, long story short, she ended up getting busted uh, for cocaine possession and driving under the influence like 12 hours before we were supposed to start shooting. Uh, we had full dress rehearsals. We had the DP of Children of Men. We had a production office. We had a location set. We had a shooting schedule. And our one of our lead actresses went into rehab. And the money was contingent upon her participation. I think Julia Stiles was willing to come in and replace her. And Brittany Murphy wanted to replace her. But they weren't as big as Lindsay Lohan at the time. And so they paid everyone for 28 days while she was in rehab and she got out before they could ramp up production. She went back into rehab again and then they lost all their money. They spent over like a, <laughs> the sad thing is they spent more money trying to make that movie than I have ever actually spent making <laughs> a movie. And, uh, the other sad thing is, is because I didn't have any representation like managers or agents or whatever, I did it all on my own. And so, I was uh, on the first day of production. The minute they called action, I was going to receive a check for $125,000. I was going to get into the Writers Guild and get insurance for like my family and everything like that. Uh, and they never called action. That sounds brutal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it really like changed my, it's weird. It, it really changed my attitude about the business a little bit. I was used to working in a place like Full Moon goes, we're going to make a movie and you only have eight days, but you're pretty much guaranteed that you're going to be making that movie in eight days. Even if you're not ready, they'll still, you'll still start shooting. Whereas uh, this was a situation where I thought everything was all lined up and um, it never shot, you know? And so even when somebody's like, what are you doing these days, Trent? I never really talk about what I'm doing because I was like one day away from the biggest job of my life and it blew up in my face. And then the worst thing was that for months and months later, you know what I mean? Everyone would be like, oh my God, congratulations. <laughs> what happened with your movie? And then you'd have to tell the 
sad, sad story again and again and again. So now I just don't talk about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, at some point you uh, wrote and directed uh, 68 Kill. Um, was it always the plan for you to direct it? And yeah, I guess it was one of the bigger yeah. or biggest projects of yours. Uh, or at least it looks uh, like a slightly bigger budget than uh, other stuff. Well, I appreciate that because, uh, you know, it was not huge budgeted, but I guess you could say right now, I mean, whatever, it was it was $500,000 movie, you know, um, which is, you know, I guess that's a lot of money to me, but to a lot of people, that's not very much money. But uh, by the time I had written 68 Kill, uh, I was able to at least go to the, because one of the producers of Cheap Thrills and that movie did very, very well. And so I was able to finally go to these guys and say, I know you don't know me as a director, but I have done a movie. Here's something I made for 25 grand in eight days. And I made you money with your with cheap thrills, which I wrote for you. So I would like to do this, but I have to direct it, man. I have to. And so this time I put my foot down and I actually got to do it. Yeah. And then you also uh, worked on a video game, uh, The Evil Within 2, or even on the first one as well, right? Uh, I think it's from a quite mm -hmm. big studio. Uh, how did that happen? And uh, yeah, how is it different from uh, writing a film? Uh, okay, uh, well, you know, as with many things in this business, you know, a lot of it just has to be if you're at the right place at the right time and you know the right people. Uh, the first game was getting ready to come out. Like, uh, and it, it was running late and it was behind schedule and it was made in Japan. And, uh, but it was mostly, you know, 90% of the units sell in English language. So there were some issues. There were issues with dialogue. There were issues with confusion and things like that. And uh, I happened to know a woman who worked for Bethesda Gameworks, uh, who are the people who put that out. And she had seen some of my movies and knew I was a writer. Our kids went to elementary school together. That's how I knew her. And uh, she, they were like, we need somebody who can come in and do some, play this game for three days, tell us what to do and do some rewriting. And so I flew to the East Coast and I played this beta a test of their game. And uh, they were like, well, what do you think? And I was like, oh, it's really cool, but why does this guy do this? And what's happening there? And they were like, you're right. We don't know. These are the same questions they have. How can you answer them? And so I suggested, well, maybe the game was like almost done. It was 98% done. So uh, I was like, we'll record some new lines of dialogue that I can write. And then uh, we'll make it so that the character can find uh, newspaper clippings and... Uh, files in a computer and things like that that can help fill in the backstory. And so they said, okay. And so I created all that stuff that you see in the first game and uh, clarified a lot of the story and they liked what I did. And then I ended up working on the DLC for that game uh, a couple months later and they were happy with that. And I thought, well, that's it. Great paycheck. Video games have a lot bigger budgets and take you know, they give you a lot more time than uh, than than, than uh, movies, independent movies. Uh, and like several years later, they called me up and they were like, "Hey, remember that game you worked on?" And I was like, "Of course." And they were like, "We're we're uh, we're about halfway through the sequel, and we're having more of the same issues we had the last time. We'd like to bring you in earlier." 
and so can you come and talk to us about it? And I did, and I pitched my services because it was a great experience. And then they were like, here's the deal. You got to go, and you got to go live in Tokyo and work with these guys, like, now. And uh, I was like, what? Guys, it's like December. Like, Christmas is coming up and everything. They're like, we don't care. You need to go get on a plane in four days, and you're going to Tokyo, and you're not coming back for five months. And I was like, what? And I told my wife about it. And then I was like, but here's how much they're paying me. And I told my wife, and she goes, but it's Christmas and New Year's and your birthday and my birthday. It's all happening, whatever. And the kids, and they got school, five months. And I was like, well, here's how much they're giving me. And she was like, get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up uh, going to Tokyo, and I wrote the screenplay for The Within Two and uh, worked there. Japanese hours, you know what I mean? 50, 60 hours a week in a cubicle grinding out pages while they were building the game. It was like wild. And uh, what was good about that, though, is that uh, it was different about a film is that, uh, you know, there's a couple of open world segments where you have to kind of think like the player and you have to go, oh, well, what if the player decides to come back and ask this guy this? We need to write dialogue for that. You know what I mean? It was almost like a um, choose-your-own-adventure with these books that they used to have when we were kids, right? Yeah. Where, you know, one, one you, know, you get to the end of the page, it's like if you turn left, then go yeah. to page 56. <laughs> if you turn right, go to page 47. So, like, trying to keep all that straight, it was fun. Mm-hmm. I had a good time, and they paid real well, and the game was yeah. cool, <laughs> you know? So uh, I guess you can't talk about if any <laughs> if any other game is coming. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, yeah, there is none. There are none, yeah. man. But uh, if there were, then I would be like, I would be like, I can't <laughs> talk about it. But if there aren't, I could be like, there's none. I wish there were, man. It was, uh, it was, it was pretty like sitting in an air conditioned sort of a place instead of in a uh, a place that's only got a porta potty and it's a hundred degrees. It's like. <laughs> There's definite benefits to uh, to making video yeah. games. And I guess it was also kind of difficult with the different culture and different language or and everything. I mean. A hundred percent. I worked with the army of uh, coders and, and people building uh, ma- uh, maps and, and whatever. And uh, I think there were maybe 230 or 240 people on this team and Three of them spoke English. Yeah. So any of my communications had to be done through one of these three people. It was, uh, you know, and honestly, they were like, we don't want an American here. We don't want this guy here. It took a long time for them to sort of accept, accept right. me and see that I was working hard and doing good work. It was weird. <laughs> it was weird, but I don't regret yeah. it. <laughs> And then um, I think at some point you uh, worked with uh, one of our Matt Heidi producers with Tero Kaukoma for the film um, It Came From The Desert. And yeah, that's how this connection to you uh, happened. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a weird, strangely enough, also based on a video game. That's right? true. I don't yeah. know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was based on a video game and uh gosh man i think that was right after 68 kill and right i did that in between 68 kill and the yeah, video okay game. that was a, that was a good and exciting year for me and um yeah but it, again i think it was uh through one of the one of the producers of that movie also produced 68 kill 
so that's how I got brought on, and uh, you know, I just did some did some work on that, and they went out and shot it, mm. man. I tell you what, that uh, that was a great year for me. I was at the Fantasy Film Fest in Deutschland, uh, and uh, they had it was spon- the entire festival was sponsored by the game I had yeah. written. They were showing Sixty Eight Kill, a movie that I had written and directed. They were also showing. It came from the desert, a movie I had co-written, and they were also showing a movie called Bad Match, which I had an acting role in. So that year, I was the king of the fantasy film festival. <laughs> and yeah, then a couple months ago, you uh, received our Mad ID script. Um, what what did you think first? And yeah, I mean, it's a it's a script full of Swiss traditions and cliches. Uh, how was it for you as a non-Swiss person to read it? Um, yeah, what was what were your thoughts? Did you think, oh fuck, now I have to fix all this and make something usable out of it, or uh, how was it? No, I mean, first of all, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before, but there's not a grand tradition of Swiss exploitation cinema or horror movies, and so anytime you can be involved in something that's like the first of something it's very exciting uh i luckily although i it's a rarity but i'm an actual an american who has been to switzerland <laughs> I, i've been to show the phone and gruyere and lausanne <laughs> and had actually like you know i accidentally i accidentally took a train the wrong train because i didn't speak french uh it's in deutsch i'm french you know what i mean and uh and i accidentally took a train all the way to Bern. Yeah one afternoon uh, and then got completely lost and whatever. I, I, I've been to the train station in Bern. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not a guy who's understanding. I had never heard of swinging, swing wrestling or, you know what I mean? I'd never mm. heard of this. And then I looked it up and was like, oh, my God, it's like Swiss. Uh, 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 what's the uh, Japanese style? Yeah, wrestling. like Swiss, Swiss sumo. It's like Swiss sumo, right? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so while I admit I am not a guy who has a lot of Swiss tradition in history, I have at least been to Switzerland. I've been to more than one city in Switzerland. Deutschland is my Geburtsland, and so like I'm sort of like there a little bit. Uh, but I knew that there were probably a lot of things that I wasn't quite understanding. Uh, but I just came on to kind of like... I got the vibe. I know what we're going for there. I'm a big fan of the spaghetti westerns. I'm a big fan of like... Uh, Euro sleaze. I'm a big fan of Grindhouse and exploitation cinema of the 70s. And I saw this and I was like, oh, yeah, man, it's all the best of like women in prison and, uh, you know, uh, SS exploitation movies and all of this stuff like rolled up into one thing. And so uh, I thought that that was where I could really bring my abilities and my knowledge to the fore and it would be up to you guys to make sure that it was as swissy as it needed yeah. to be <laughs> yeah coming back to your uh, trip to switzerland um to the or to the listeners who don't know it um you should definitely check out uh, trois mille cent plan neuf uh, film festival in la chotte-fonds um, it didn't take place this year because of corona unfortunately um but um yeah, it's a great uh, exploitation B-movie festival uh, taking place in an old uh, church in La Chantefonds. A uh, great setting. Uh, we screened our Mad Heidi teaser there last year. Um, and it's yeah, one of the most uh, crazy events I've ever seen. <laughs> How was it for you there? And what <laughs> film did you screen there? Uh, 
Uh, let me see. I think uh, I when I was there, I screened my directorial debut, Chop, and I think that they. I'm fairly certain they screened 68 Kill uh, uh, two years ago. You know, so I've had. I'm sort of a friends of that festival now, I guess, because of that. Uh, uh, yeah, the one great thing about that festival is that it was. It's from dawn, dusk until dawn every day. <laughs> Like most festivals, you're like, oh, I didn't make it to that 10 a.m. screening because it was 10 a.m. This festival does not start until the sun goes down <laughs> and then ends when the sun comes up in the morning. And that was a really that was a really cool thing, the way they would just do 12 hardcore hours of screening and then everybody would go home and sleep all day and then come back and do it again. <laughs> yeah, you can check out, by the way, you can check out the reaction video on our YouTube channel of the crowd reacting to the Matt Heidi teaser. Um, and uh, yeah, you already said you've been to Gruyere. Uh, I guess it's no question what you did there. Uh, you visited the H.R. Giger Museum, I guess. Yes, of course, of course. I mean, you know, the and the bar and everything like that. I mean, uh, if you're even a slight fan of you, know, you don't even have to be a fan of Alien. If you're just a fan of unusual fringe art, uh, then of course you know who Giger is, and you, uh, I'd known about that place for years and years and years. And when they were like, uh, "Oh, we've got a day trip planned for all the filmmakers to go out there," I was super excited. And of course, we also had to have fondue afterwards. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, Giger of course is probably one of the most important and influential uh, Swiss artists we ever had um yeah that bar that bar is really something the design of it is pretty amazing and is there i mean i guess when we look at your acting career it's pretty clear that you will have to play a small part in mad heidi Uh, (laughs) (laughs) if they if they they allow travelers from the united states in your country (laughs) i may be trapped here in the states for the next 10 years i don't know yeah let's hope not (laughs) (laughs) but yeah would be great to have you uh, in a small cameo role and yeah maybe you should even bring uncle lloyd with you (laughs) i you know what i know lloyd would love to and i would uh it just depends on what the you know what? If the if the Mad Heidi uh, Buck, if the Heidi Buck, Buck Heidi Bonds buyers want to want that to happen, put them no, up yeah. there. Let's do it. I'll be in the movie all day long, dude. All day long. You know why? Because I want to learn how to make a yeah. movie. So the best way for me to do that is to go act in your movie, so you can teach me something, man. And uh, yeah, so uh, is there something uh, you're looking forward to about Switzerland uh, to visit or to eat uh, after you read? Uh, or and worked on the this script <laughs> uh yeah well first of all i want to i would love to see some swinging getting shot in real life i was it was the most intriguing thing to me about that I, I that was the i was like what is this how have i never heard of the tradition of swinging man i've never heard of that uh you know and i'm of course i'm an american we're pretty stupid in general about other people's cultures but you know, I've been to Switzerland. I'm like moderately well read, but I had never seen this wrestling. So uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, so I guess we're going to go to a swing fest. <laughs> that would be amazing. Well, if we're going to, you know, you just have to make my scene. Oh, I can't talk about the movie. Yeah, never yeah. mind. <laughs> Spoiler alert. 
but uh, 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 yeah, man, I uh, I gotta say, I'm not. I thought that uh, the, uh, the the fondue that I had there in Gruyere was amazingly delicious, and uh, I've not had anything even approaching the the taste of that cheese. So, uh, gosh, I guess if I went back to Switzerland, I would have to sample some of that cheese. <laughs> Definitely, and we will try our uh, Heidi's Opsin. Um, yeah. our own brand unfortunately i can't send you a bottle because um they count as explosive goods so um <laughs> the really? post is not allowed to uh, ship it over the border unfortunately we can only deliver it to switzerland well i mean i gotta go there <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah i guess we're coming soon to an end so it's probably time for me to check out if there are some um, you, um questions from our fans um, okay, someone asks, um, what do you think is the unique uh, strength of uh, a project like Matt Heidi, uh, something that stands out from all other projects? Uh, well, you know, I think it comes right back to the idea that this is the first of its kind. You know what I mean? Uh, and and any time you want to be a part of the first of its kind, it's it's always very exciting. You're uh, you're obviously we're sort of emulating or homaging uh, genres of the past, but doing them in a way that hasn't been done before because of its like Swissness. You know what I mean? And uh, that's the part of the thing that drew me to the project, and that's what's exciting about it, and that's what's going to make it different because. Why by gum? There is no, there is no other uh, mad Heidi. There's nothing, there's nothing like that, right? No, there's other Heidi adaptations that have been done, but never one like this. Mm. This is a first. Yeah, let's see. Maybe it will inspire more young filmmakers to make more uh, Swissploitation films. I mean, that would be the ultimate exactly. goal, of course. Yes, we, need, <laughs> we need film movements like the Jallos or the Spaghetti Westerns. Mm. Now we need Swissploitation become the thing exactly and finally put switzerland on a map of the in international film industry um someone is asking what would be your um advice um for matt heidi as a, a guy experienced in the business uh yeah for us as a project or for me as a director uh. um you know what honestly i feel that you know, you and your producers know what you're doing. You know what I mean? I, I, I think that like the way you're raising funds, the way you have uh, 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 the way they did in Iron Sky, they were able to raise funds and get distribution deals and do everything completely outside of the standard system is super interesting. And it's the wave of the future. I mean, unless you want to only make movies for Netflix or Amazon or Hulu because there's only going to be four or five people that you could make a movie for unless you strike out and do things like this. You know what I mean? Do it, do it your own way. Uh, you know, look, man, I've seen the teaser. That looks slicker than anything I've ever made in my life. You know, uh, uh, I really have less advice than more. I, I honestly look at this more like um, I like to watch other people and work with other people so that I can learn from watching them. I think that any advice that I would have uh, would have more to do with what the work that I'm doing for you. You know, you've asked me to come in and sort of help you with the script. And that was my job. That was me giving my advice in the capacity that I feel that I'm best at, you know. Uh, 
But uh, as far as that goes, you know, I think you guys have got this. I think you've got the right idea. I think you have the right plan. I think you've got the right visual style. So, uh, and I think you, I think you guys have all done this before. You know, I, I, I would have more advice to give if I thought you were less experienced or less sure or certain in your vision. But it's quite apparent by, you know, the the logos, the the teaser, the distribute, the, the 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 fundraising plan. I mean, how do I, why I I've, I I am not I'm good enough at that to give any of you guys advice on that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, maybe to uh, soon close this, uh, let's talk for a minute about um, the current film um, landscape. Uh, what do you think about the current uh, big budget Hollywood like Marvel stuff? And uh, are there any particular filmmakers that you think are very interesting who are making movies at the moment? Well, you know, honestly, I got to say that uh, what I thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was my favorite movie last year. Uh, so I, I keep hoping that I'm going to see that new person. You know, in 1999, I was introduced to like Spike Jones and David O. Russell and Paul Anderson and all these kind of guys. Uh, but we haven't had a run of that in a long time here. Uh, I love, obviously, Herzog and Gaspar Noe and, and Alejandro Jodorowsky and Alex de la Iglesia and like all the guys from the 70s. But man, I tell you. Even filmmakers that I like, I, I don't know about the streaming thing and this Netflix thing. I feel like Netflix goes, oh, you're a director and you made a good money. Here's a giant pile or you made a good movie. Here's a giant pile of money and there's no oversight and there's no you would think that if you gave the guy who made the raid a big pile of money and no guidance that he'd be able to make something better than the raid. But as it is. His Netflix movie was utterly forgettable to me. You know what I mean? I almost feel like in a weird way that this new streaming, there's no quality control or oversight because they don't care if people buy tickets and they don't care if it, you know, they're just making product. Mm. Are you, are you feeling that? Cause I mean, I certainly, yeah, I that's guess a it's lot a bit uh, quantity over quality. It feels, I mean, they need tons of movies yeah. to fill these uh, streaming platforms. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but you would think that an artist giving being given money and no sort of like over sort of overwatching or guidance, radical movies that yeah. were you know what I mean that, that changed cinema, and instead they all seem like ch cheaper, less thought out versions of what they're already doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if that makes sense, you know. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, I really thought that uh, I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I thought Climax was like pretty amazing. Yeah, awesome. Uh, but in general, but did I, you watch uh, Mandy with uh, Nicolas Cage? I did. I did. And while I appreciated the uh, visual aspect of it, I mean, in essence, you're like, hey, Trent, what's this Nicolas Cage <laughs> movie about? And you're like, bad guys kill Nicolas Cage's wife and he gets revenge. Yeah. You know, and there'd be like, oh, wait, that's exactly <laughs> the last 12 movies that Nicolas Cage did. <laughs> Maybe they kidnapped his daughter. Yeah. Maybe they killed his wife. Maybe they killed his daughter and kidnapped his wife. But he goes to get revenge from some bad guys. And I guess that was the, uh, yeah. you know, being a screenwriter or whatever, you know, you're like, it had a great visual pop to yeah. it. But I wish that 
there was just a little bit more. A little bit more story. And when I realized that I had been watching the movie for an entire hour before the wife gets killed and he goes on revenge, I was like, wow. Uh. You know, and then in 1972, a Grindhouse audience would be like, no, like you got to kill the wife 15 <laughs> minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> And but uh, but do you still watch the big stuff? I mean, do you watch the latest Marvel movies coming out? Or I mean, I somehow gave up on them. I watched a few, but I also have no connection to the comics personally. I I was never a comic right. reader. So. No, no, I don't really. Uh, I think that Iron Man three, I think, was the last one that I paid to see in the theater, and I was like, that's it, man. Like I'm done with these. Mm. I don't like the idea that. These are like basically big budget TV shows. Like you can watch them by themselves, but they aren't satisfying by themselves. They're meant to be consumed as a 22 movie continuum. And if you don't buy into all of them, then none of them are as effective. That's a weird way to make movies, in my opinion. Yeah. I think that's a great um, word to finish this. <laughs> so. Um... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I hope we, uh, there will be another uh, stream soon or we don't know yet if it's going to be a live stream always these uh, mad talks or maybe um, it will be pre-recorded stuff. But yeah, mad talk will be back and I hope everyone enjoyed it. Um, if you want to support Matt Heidi, go to MattHeidi.com. Uh, you can buy Heidi's absinthe, um, t-shirts and everything you need. Um, yeah, and if you buy uh, merchandise, 50% of the price uh, goes to the production of the film. And, uh, or you can buy Heidi Bonds if you just want to give uh, money into the film. And yeah, you can get some exclusive bonus rewards like uh, your name in the film credits and stuff like that. Yeah, so check it out on madheidi.com if you're not a supporter yet. So yeah, thanks, Trent. And uh, thank you. Yeah speak to you soon and all right uh, hopefully hopefully uh hope to see you on set soon yeah definitely yeah i really hope we will see each other yeah soon on yeah. set of course <laughs> all right so have a nice Thank day you. and goodbye to everyone else have a nice evening bye everybody